I think he froze his feet. His feet were just giant, swollen, and black. That's Randy Brown describing what he and his hunting buddy Fred saw after opening Randy's cabin deep in the wilderness of interior Alaska. He was so skinny. There was just no meat on his bones at all. And he had starved. Randy and Fred found this man dead, 120 miles from the nearest tiny town, deep in the subarctic forest. This is where they lived. There were three of us that were really living out there during that first couple of years. We all agreed that if we ever got into that situation where we were starving out, that we would hope that the others would eat us. Weren't going to kill the other guy, but if he died, nothing wrong with eating him. When we found him there, we saw how emaciated he was. And I turned to Fred and I says, I think I'm going to stick with Beaver. (laughs) And uh, he's going like, yep. Yeah, we're not going to eat this guy. Crazy situations, but I mean, we had gone through these scenarios. We knew we were living right on the edge. Randy had moved from Santa Fe to Fairbanks, Alaska, with a dream of living totally off the land in the wildest country possible. When he was 19, he hitchhiked as far up the road as he could to the Yukon River. He got a couple of big huskies, and with his rifle, he walked off into the wilderness. So I went out in 1976. Randy built a cabin, and he planned to live off only what he could find and make. I spent several months at a time all by myself, trapping and hunting. I sewed all my own winter clothes, caribou pants and caribou parka. He made candles out of moose fat, wove his own snowshoes. He ate only meat. Caribou meat or moose meat? Those are your choices. Cold water or warm water. But that was about it. Up that close to the Arctic Circle, it doesn't get dark at all. All summer. And in winter. It gets so that the sun only comes up over the horizon for a short period. A dawn and then immediately another dusk. It was regularly 40 below when Randy went out to check his trap lines in winter but he got to living so minimally that he stopped even bringing a tent. I just filled a long fire, and then you'd just be laying three or four feet away from the fire on a caribou hide. He lived all year round in conditions that most people can barely survive in. He got really good at it. But late one summer, when Randy was out hunting with his friend Seymour, his skills were about to be tested. I had gone on a trip with this guy, Seymour. At one point, we're looking up the river, we see a bear head, and a bear is swimming the river. It was a big bear, the kind that most people run from. But for Randy and Seymour, this bear meant dinner. They wanted that bear. They needed that bear. Unfortunately, one of our dogs, he ended up spotting this bear. So he takes off running up the bank, and all five dogs roared up the bank. We're sitting there going, oh, this is not good. This is not good. We want to get the meat, and we can't shoot him in the water because he's going to sink. There could be dogs drowning. Bear could gut them and kill them. The dogs are his pack animals, his protectors, his best friends, and they are swimming wildly towards a very large and angry bear. Randy and Seymour have a moment to decide. Finally, Seymour says, you got the 243, get in front. And so I'm like, okay, let's do it. 
We jump into the boat and took off from shore. The bear is turning his head. He's not happy, he's snorting a little bit. We're paddling full speed in this canoe. We're traveling fast, so I'm immediately up on him. And I shoot him right in the back of the head, grabbed him right above the tail. And he had enough fur that I was able to hold on. And it turns out we had a 250-pound cinnamon-faced black bear. An August bear is a great eaten piece of meat. Randy could find everything he needed out there. Everything except the one thing he needed most. So all winter long, I mean, I'd look for tracks, you know, of single women, but I never found any. So, <laughs> yeah, but so here I was, late teens, early 20s at that point, and no women, no women out there. I didn't, I truly, I didn't know how to proceed. I didn't know what to do. So he built a raft, floated two days downriver, and hitchhiked 150 miles into Fairbanks. Then came the hard part. I came into Fairbanks and went up to the university, and they had a bulletin board, and I put a note on the bulletin board. Trapper living out in the woods, wanting a woman. If you're interested, write me. And I got no response. <laughs> I got no response. So Randy tried a more direct approach. You know, when I would meet single women, I asked them if they wanted to go and live out in the woods. And, of course, everyone said no. But Randy kept on like this for a while. He'd travel into town, meet a woman his age, they'd get to talking, he'd ask the woman to move in with him, and she would say, This guy's out of his mind. Karen first met Randy at the Solstice Festival in Fairbanks. She said no, but... But I was interested enough that I did get his address. And we started having these communications by mail. Karen sent a letter off on a bush plane and then up the dirt highway to Randy's address, General Delivery Eagle. Only when someone canoed past Randy's cabin did he finally get the letter. So Randy figured he'd speed up the get-to-know-you process and give Karen a call. He harnessed the sled dogs and mushed into town, a several-day trip, to get to the one village phone. I know for you it was an expression of my love or lust or whatever. you remember how close it was? what you told me at the time was 67 below. That's so cold that if you throw a bucket of water into the air, it doesn't just freeze, it vaporizes instantly. It was very impressive. 67 below really stuck. It's like, you know, well, this is dedication. Randy's dedication paid off. Karen and Randy got married the next year on the Yukon River. They found a big spruce grove and built a little cabin where they started their life together. And I remember our third grade teacher, Mrs. Miller, asking what we were going to do when we grew up, and I told her I was going to live in a log cabin in the woods. So I did. I just didn't realize when I got to my log cabin in the woods, it might be 110 miles from the nearest village. They built their cabin on land owned by the Doyon people. And many of the local Doyon really liked having Karen and Randy out there. They liked that. We were carrying on some of the traditional knowledge that had been passed on to Randy through some of the elders there. In 1983, they had their first son, Jedediah, and then Gabe in 1987. Their nearest neighbors lived 20 miles away. Sometimes it took days to get to anyone's house, but everyone knew each other. They had these big parties on the equinox where everyone brought meat to share. They stayed at these gatherings sometimes for days. 
You were far away from other people, but I never felt disconnected. I never doubted that if I mushed 20 miles upriver, I was going to be welcomed in and taken care of. I find being alone isn't lonely. Being lonely is if you're in a crowd of people that doesn't need you or want you. Randy still went out and tended to their fur traps, and the whole family packed up the toboggan and mushed into town once a year to trade fur for bullets. The rest of the year, we didn't use money at all. Didn't see it, didn't carry it, not ever, the whole rest of the year. Out there, I felt like I was king of the world. I could do anything, be out in any weather, build cabins and canoes and get meat and fish, anything. If the whole world fell apart and we were up on the Candic River, we knew we could get what we needed to survive. They lived 10 years like this, with only the passing of the seasons marking big changes in their lives. But in 1990... Doyon got a New York City lawyer. Even if the Doyon liked that Karen and Randy carried on traditional practices for all those years, the New York City lawyer had other concerns. They could get hurt. They could sue. So he sent us a very nasty cease and desist all activities letter. In 1991, they were forced out of their cabin in the woods. It was really sad. Randy had picked my wedding bouquet. One of the gals at our wedding had pressed them between glass, and we put that window in this door. So the last thing I did was take that and bring that with us. They moved to Fairbanks, a city of over 30,000 people. They had cars and grocery stores and neighbors right down the road. And they were lonely, they were exhausted, and they were broke. And I got into Fairbanks where all of a sudden you had rent to pay every month. I tell you what, I just... uh, I felt pretty helpless. When he applied for his first federal job, he had this one little paragraph, I've lived and worked in the woods for the last 15 years. I've done everything necessary for subsistence. I didn't have the skills that anybody wanted to pay any money for. It was a tough time. A lot tougher than any year out in the woods. We got broken into and they took every one of Randy's tools. I guess I prefer nature's dangers. Randy and Karen moved to town 20 years ago. They still have their dogs, but they're just pets. Still have an outhouse, but they also have a bathroom. They still have canoes, but those are just for fun now. And now I have my log cabin in the woods right on the edge of Fairbanks. Much bigger log happened. You know, there's different phases of life. We moved in and I don't know. I don't think we're gonna ever move back out. You remember when I said that I was hoping when Jed and Gabe got to be 18, we wanted to be able to send them off with a big gun, a 22, and an ax. We figured if we could do that, they'd be able to take care of themselves out there. I don't believe I ever quite said that. No, you didn't, I did. You always told me that I was dreaming.
We'd like to thank Randy Brown and his wife, Karen, for welcoming us into their lives. That story was produced by Snap Judgment's own Julia DeWitt. You are listening to Snap Judgment, and to hear more stories, visit snapjudgment.org.